0: I've become more aware of where I deploy my attention, where I deploy my focus, um, and realizing the areas where it's easy to do foot, like imagine like going on Twitter for me or Reddit or Instagram, like it's, it's cheap calories. It's easy to divert focus to something like that. And then realizing that when I'm reading a book, right. Or reading an article or listening to a podcast and really trying to retain the information, it feels like I'm, I'm like climbing up a hill. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to figure out if there are, like, behaviors I could do to change the, the kind of barrier and the fact that it feels like work. Um, so with this, like, overall idea of focus and attention, I listened to this Ezra Klein episode. Um, you, you know Ezra Klein, like the New York Times reporter, a mm-hmm. bunch of podcasts, really, really big, smart dude. Um, and he was interviewing this man, uh, Johan Hari, who just published this book called Stolen Focus, Um, This is an author who's a New York Times bestseller. He's written about stress. He's written about uh, opioid crises and all these different things. Um, Interestingly enough, it's like the first thing that comes up on on, uh, Wikipedia is that he was suspended from the Independent because he was plagiarizing and apparently editing the Wikipedias of journalists who criticized him, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Like. If I ever become like a talking head or a celebrity, I would spend so much time on Wiki just making up shit about the people who talk <laughs> negatively about me. So I, I love that. But um, they they had this conversation about a whole host of really interesting topics when it comes to focus. Um, and I, they're like questions I've thought about, questions I wanted to ask you about. But I thought before we get into that, I kind of wanted to give their framework for like what attention is and what are the different types of attention. Um, mm-hmm. Before we kind of get into some of the questions and like like uh, worries that they they rose, so how, how does that sound? Like I think I just want to explain some of the high level things, and then we could like dig a little deeper into it because I like love a lot of this stuff.
1: This sounds good, man. I'm uh, I'm ready to turn my Gary V hat on. Attention is the primary <laughs> asset. It's it's all that matters,
0: really. So they're the first line, right? Is that they're defining attention as the ability to selectively attend to things in your environment. So the argument kind of is that there are four like levels to attention, right? Your first level is called spotlight. This is your immediate actions, things like walking into the kitchen, pouring a glass of tea, um, doing all that sort of thing. It means when you have like a narrow focus and when that focus is interrupted, you can't do the task that you're planning to do, right? This is Mm -hmm. when you walk into your kitchen, you go to the fridge and you forget what you were going to the fridge for, right? Like Mm -hmm. narrow tasks, that sort of thing. That's first layer, spotlight second layer is called starlight this is the focus that you apply to longer term goals right the goal of i would like to read this book right or i would like to get good grades this semester Um, these are the things that give you an overall direction um, in terms of like where where you want to go what direction you want to move in right Mm -hmm. and if this gets interrupted you don't know what your next step is right at a higher level right that's called starlight the third level is called daylight this level informs what the starlight is. So if your starlight is something like, I want to get a high GPA this semester, or I want to get promoted at work, your daylight is why do you want to get promoted at work? How do you know you want to get promoted at work? Why do you care about these things, right? And when that gets interrupted, then you're losing a sense of self, you're questioning your identity, and you're just like generally lost, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that third layer. And obviously, there's a big interplay with starlight. And then the last layer is what they argue kind of one of the most important and one of the reasons why people are actually feeling this diminished focus. Um, This layer is just called mind wandering, right? And Mm -hmm. when you allow your mind to wander, this is when you're processing things in the past. This is when you're anticipating the future. This is when you're strengthening like associative connections and associative memory um, and coming up with new ideas, right? And one of the things that Ezra brought up is brought up is that A lot of people today have just completely gotten rid of this mind-wandering element, um, Mm -hmm. and they've kind of depended on getting more input and more mental input, right? If you go for a walk, you can't just go for a walk. You need to listen to that podcast so you have, like, something and there's more input there. If you're in that elevator, you can't just stand there for a second, right? You have to scroll on something, right? So at the I'll, I'll pause for a second after that but like those are the four levels of attention that they feel like is is kind of what people talk about when they're talking about focus.
1: So, do they think that you need to address the fourth element before the third, the second, and the first? Like is the idea that you start at the top and then your focus will improve its way down?
0: Great question the idea not necessarily a progression the the idea that they actually bring up is you're constantly toggling between all of these different types of focus mm-hmm. right so almost that like switches sense. are going on and off and you're thinking about these different types of things so you kind of have to hold this at the same time that also relates to another issue that they bring up that I'll I'll talk about in in a second
1: well yeah just let me say one thing so The fourth level is the one I resonate with the most because I feel like this is something I do particularly well, actually. Mm. Um, I have made a very conscious effort probably since the beginning of the pandemic to stop uh, consuming content that I didn't intend to consume. And so what that means is that I end up going for a lot of walks, driving in the car a lot and just sitting on my porch a lot doing nothing. And my roommate Hmm. thinks it's the weirdest thing ever. Like literally sometimes I will be in our living room and he'll be eating on his phone and he'll just be like, what are you thinking about? And I'm just like, (laughs) literally nothing. I don't know. Like I'm just lost in thought about whatever I'm thinking about. But it's been, I think it's really great for me. And like, you know, knees over toes guy talks about this. He said that when he was really young, he had a job just painting um, houses and he would paint 10 to 12 hours a day. And he says he came up, came up with a lot of the insights for knees over toes during that period, because he was literally spending 10 to 12 hours a day, not consuming any content, just doing things. And I think Hmm. like I have found so much clarity and I've made so many good decisions based on that time, just doing nothing.
0: So question there because that's something I actually very much struggle with because I always feel like my time has to be going into something else so being able mm-hmm. to set time aside to to do that activity is difficult does does that feel like work like do you feel like you have to actively put yourself in a right environment and allow your your mind to wander or do you feel like this was even in the beginning when you started doing this did it feel like a natural tendency or
1: natural impulse it's definitely a natural impulse like right like keep in mind I'm an only child so I've lived mm. my entire life um, where I, you know, I read a lot as a child, but it's definitely never been weird to me to just be alone with my thoughts. So I think it does mm-hmm. come naturally to me for sure. And it definitely doesn't feel like work. Like I never feel like, because again, I'm not trying to do anything specific, right? Like I think Naval Ravikant says it best. He's like, when he meditates, he's not trying to do anything. He's just doing nothing for 60 seconds. And so sometimes mm. I want to think about things. Sometimes I want to listen to the way the water sounds. Sometimes I want to look at things, but I really mm. just let whatever happens happens. And so then it doesn't feel stressful or like work.
0: That's, that's beautiful. I have to learn. That's, that's the <laughs> next step for me personally, learning that sort of thing. Um, because they kind of like they the another thing that they mention are that there are these like two types of attention. So you have like these four classes we talked about already, but there are two types. One is called um bottom-up attention, right? Which mm-hmm. is when you're reacting to something, right? So a car passes, you look towards that, right? Or you hear thunder, you you think about that and your your mind fleets. Um that's the bottom-up attention, and then that second type is the top-down attention where you have to intentionally focus where your attention's going, right? So like we're doing this podcast, I'm focusing on you. And I feel like what you're talking about, this mind wandering is like, because normally these two types of things are always at conflict, but it sounds like when you allow your mind to wander, one, you allow yourself to kind of react to what's happening in front of you, but you're also being intentional uh, about like what's going on in your head, which I think is a really cool symbiosis of those two things.
1: Yeah. I mean, someone worth uh, reading on this topic is one of uh, Tim Ferriss's best friends, Josh Waitzkin. And he talks Mm. about in his book, The Art of Learning, how like the unconscious mind is just like 10, 100x more powerful than the conscious mind. And so to a certain extent, the idea is that, you know, you come up with your best ideas when you're not actually trying to come up with them. Uh, Mm. and, um, he has a really interesting practice where he'll write down a question at night. Um, and he won't try to work on it or answer it, but then he'll journal on it. The next thing in the morning, the idea is that his unconscious mind has been working on it the whole time. And then now he's ready Mm. to go. And so I think you can make a lot of progress by leaning into this idea that like the non-conscious mind is a little bit smarter than you are.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. That's interesting. I have to yeah, I'm going to look in I'm going to look into him. But back to this overall idea of focus that I found interesting. After they give this framework, they talk about all the real reasons that they believe kind of people are diminishing in terms of focus and, and people's ability of focus is is kind of going down. Um, one is the idea that we talked about that like you suppress this mind wandering with actual mental input. Um, and then there's also this, uh, this term that the first time I'm hearing about this, this idea of like sleep crisis, that we're in a sleep crisis, that mm-hmm. we're sleeping 20% less than we did a century ago. People are walking around with like local sleep where parts of the brain are shut down and you're kind of like you're, mm. you're, you're navigating as a zombie for, for a lot of people. Sounds um, like Columbia then,
1: university's campus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and
0: then there are other things like the, the, the way we eat, right? Like you have a lot of sugary things that kind of, give you this burst, right? And deplete and it's, your body's not absorbing over time. um, And this leads to some issues, just overall brain limitations, right? That the fact is that we can only focus on one or two things at a time. And a lot of people think that they're just able to have their focus in several different directions when really Mm -hmm. you're just having this, um, this switch cost effect, right? Where you're, you're toggling between things and I think data shows that it takes around 23 minutes for you to get back to the level of intensity you were on on a task before switching. Um, Mm -hmm. And because people are never getting that recovery time, you're just always in a brain depleted state. right? Um, And then the last point that's interesting is this idea of hypervigilance. Uh, He makes this argument that nowadays, because your brain, right, is constantly scanning for threats, right? Like this is a autonomous uh, thing that's happening in in your brain. Um, And people are at a state of hypervigilance because of things like COVID, because of things like uh, financial inequality and equities, right? 60% of American public doesn't have like 500 in savings, all these sorts of stats that you hear about. Um, And then I also would add to that, like, there's this this like social threat that's happening now, right? When you, you network with someone, or you talk with someone, it's the idea of, am I impressive enough to this person? Do I have mm-hmm. all the social parameters that people think about? So the argument that this author makes is that people are in states of hypervigilance, which means that their ability to focus is very, very low. Um, and this is like another problematic thing that's happening. So those well, are kind of like a- the arguments there
1: yeah and it sounds like this inability to focus is also leading to just a de- a general dissatisfaction with life like i brought up this author josh waitskin one thing i picked up from him a long time ago was this idea about like being in flow and that when mm. you're in flow and you're really focused on one particular thing whether it be a conversation or an assignment or whatever you're working on uh it's really easy to be satisfied with your life in those moments And potentially maybe all of this dissatisfaction has to do with the fact that we're never in flow ever, right? And if you're just constantly uh, not focused at all times, you're probably going to feel very dissatisfied with whatever going on.
0: Precisely. That was actually talked about a bit in the the episode because... Like, the base level argument that you pay attention to things that you find meaningful, just like as mm-hmm. a, kind of an evolutionary advancement, um, is exactly what you're talking about. Like, you could only get in flow based on things that you find meaningful, that you find value in. And if you're constantly switching, there there's several layers to that. The interesting question about all of this is that it's like... One, whose fault is this? And two, whose problem is it to solve, right? Because you Mm -hmm. hear all of this and you're like, this is an individual thing. Like I have to work on being able to strengthen my focus. I have to think about the environment that I'm in. And the author kind of has the different... Uh, different like response in saying that this is like a policy thing. This is a government thing. He Mm -hmm. brings up how the French government instituted the whole right to disconnect, right? Where your employer can't contact you after a certain time um, or like have levels of involvement with you uh, in times that you're not working. Right. And he talks about if there should be things like a, a sugar tax, right? Because we mentioned how the diet affects your ability to focus, right? Or looking at the Facebook and TikToks of the world and putting more legislation on them because of them affecting abilities to focus. So I guess my question to you would be like, is this, obviously nothing's binary, right? But is this a problem that the government and corporation has to solve? And it's an environmental thing that they're putting on people that's lowering their quality of life. Or is this an individual thing that people just have to be more aware of how they deploy their focus and employing strategies to help out with that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely individual. The reason I don't like the uh, regulatory route is because it leads to like mission creep, right? Like, and I think this is actually gonna happen anyway. Like, I mean, people understand that social media is having uh, detrimental effects on their health, whether it be physical or mental. And so they're like, oh, let's regulate Facebook. But I think the actual outcome of that, is the government overreaches into the data that Facebook has and uses it for nefarious purposes, um, which mm. is related to actually my first topic. And um, I think the, the so that's point number one. Point number two is the reason I think this has to be individual is because even if they were to successfully make TikTok less addictive, you can still addict yourself to it. Like this is at the, at mm. fundamentally, this, this problem can't be fixed unless uh, individuals take accountability for the way that they interact with media. Um, one thing that I like that Naval Ravikant says is like, in an age of abundance, you have to decide to be an ascetic if you want to be uh, live a meaningful, sustained, focused life. And so I think that's uh, what has to happen. Individuals have to take accountability and we probably shouldn't be asking for more regulation of these social media sites because that could come back to bite us.
0: Huh, that's that's interesting. I I like to the to the TikTok point. I, I push back a bit on that because there are levels that they like. You think of the fact that they employ a lot of social psychologists that think about the colors that they use, the in the stimuli that they put on the screen. Um, even things of, you think about Robinhood, right? The government telling them they couldn't do the confetti anymore when they did trades. So I think there are like certain levels of things that the government could get involved in that one is not getting into the overreaching kind of snowball effect that you're talking about, but two Mm -hmm. are some of the base level things that they could help. Because yes, you can still get addicted to these platforms, but there are strategies that they employ that are quite exploitative that probably could be discussed there. So I, I think- I I like, I think there is still leeway that does not get to the overarching thing or overreach
1: that you're, you're worried about. Right. There's some type of middle ground here.
0: Yeah. 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 But I, I, I I, I love the topic of focus. I'm getting deeper into it. Um, and I'm going to keep reporting back on these things because I think understanding the, the things happening in the brain when you're focusing and like the strategies to either optimize it or turn down different parts
1: is pretty, pretty interesting yeah come uh, come final season we can have a <laughs> we can have a recap of this discussion see how it worked all right absolutely um so I want to talk about the Canadian response to the trucker protest. are you familiar I with- I hate um, you
0: I hate i that was my okay <laughs> wow this is one of your topics i it wasn't it was part of one of my topics but yeah well,
1: let's let's do I think, it. I think you'll like this because I don't actually want to talk about the the substance of the protest i I want to talk about the Canadian response to it right? So um the idea here is that they decide they, they basically used their emergencies act to tell mm-hmm. all financial service providers to freeze the accounts of the truckers and the truckers' families. So this is like banks, but also insurance companies and also crypto companies, which I think is yeah. a really interesting point. Um, and so uh, they, they decided to do this instead of what I think they should have done, which is they should have arrested the truckers and charged them with something, right? Which I think they eventually did do. Um, but the, the, the real point here is that if you're one of these truckers, you have now been basically officially unbanked. And I think it's important to recognize that these financial institutions that unbank these truckers are not going to rebank them in the future. Uh, if these truckers are deemed to have not committed crimes. And I think that's a really important point here. Like they decided to basically unbank these individuals without due process. And these types of like overwhelming actions uh, by governments like Canada is, in my opinion, going to push people towards crypto and specifically Bitcoin. Because once you've basically been removed from the financial system and you're not going to be allowed to go back, you need an alternative. And so what can this, you Yeah, go ahead. Just so didn't
0: mean to like I I just would love to know a bit more of the details here. When you say they were unbanked and cannot be rebanked, what is like can you explain that more why cannot they why can they not be rebanked? Like how why is there a restriction there?
1: So the unbanking part means that they either had their assets in their bank account frozen or they had their bank accounts closed. The reason that I don't think that many of them will be rebanked is because it's too much of a hassle for the financial service providers. They would rather just not be associated with these people so that they don't have the harassment coming from their government.
0: Hmm. Okay. Is there like, is there any evidence to that point? Like that—that that feels like an interest. I, I don't know. When I think of financial institutions, I think that they are deploying a service, and I'm not saying that every individual has a right to that service, but I think the argument that they—they they don't want the hassle, so they wouldn't rebank someone—is kind of a jump. Like, I'd love to know if there's evidence or historical precedents for that happening.
1: Well, I don't think it's a jump because you have to recognize that like one individual is not where Chase Bank is going to be making most of their money. In all, in all, uh. Like, like the Chase banks of the world don't even make most of their money through like depository accounts, right? Like interacting with like me and you. So I do think that interacting with anyone that's on like a government bad list for the very little financial benefit that they're going to give from like allowing that person to have a depository account is enough of a blocker to say like, Hey, we're just not going to serve you. Right. <laughs> and now that doesn't mean that this person can't get a bank account anywhere um, but it does mean that it's going to make their life very, very difficult to live in like the modern online payments economy. Of course. Of course. Okay. And so I think the bigger point that I wanted to go to is like this um, This situation really cemented in my mind for me, the reason why I think a lot of people are going to start asking to be paid in Bitcoin, right? Um, before this scenario, I never really understood why you would want to be paid in Bitcoin because it's like why not just buy Bitcoin with the money that you have? Like why even go through this process of getting paid in Bitcoin? But Mm -hmm. one thing that you have to recognize is that if you want to buy Bitcoin on something like Coinbase, you have to have a bank account, right? Or you have to have a credit card. And if you get removed from the financial system and then you decide that you want to be able to like still buy things and Bitcoin is your only option, you still have to get it somehow. And now the only way that you can get it is by someone who already has it sending it to you in the form of mm-hmm. your employer or um, you know, in getting donations. Like basically if you get unbanked and you can't buy Bitcoin, now you have to earn it. And so I think yeah. this was a really good example of what the ultimate use case is for Bitcoin. It's not just about number go up technology. It's really about people who are unbanked being able to be banked without anyone's permission.
0: No, I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. It also, when I when I first heard about this, all, not only the fact that the individuals in the protest were being unbanked, but the fact that. Um, listening to the all in pod and David Sachs was talking about this, and he said that people oh he had he had give... a
1: great he had a great take on this,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he was talking about how people who give twenty five dollars or more as a donation to any of the protesters are also being targeted, right whether it 's being frozen, unbanked and et cetera um, I think it's very the idea of being dropped out of the circle of banking services is very frightening. And it reminds me of what happened with uh, the OnlyFans, right? When MasterCard and Visa were like, we're just not going to process these these credit card transactions. Like, We will not let, allow you to pay for this. And I think very similarly there when people were like, crypto works for this sort of use case, um, taking power away from these financial institutions, I think is what we're going to start seeing in, in the coming coming
1: years. Yeah, and there's a great thread on uh, Twitter. There's a guy, uh, he calls himself Punk6529, and that's Mm. because he owns CryptoPunk6529, so he's pseudonymous. Um, He had a great thread on this where he basically said, um, you can't have any constitutional rights without the right to transact, because the exercise of all rights costs money. So for instance, if you want to exercise your right to freedom of speech, let's say like online online. Um, you need to be able to pay for a device and an internet connection, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to be able mm-hmm. to go to Washington, D.C. to like hold a rally, you need to be able to pay for your transportation to get there. Um, for the right of assembly, you need to be able to pay to be able to apply, to get yeah. permits, to assemble, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so basically he's saying like if you unbank someone and you make it very, very difficult for them to engage in any type of financial transaction – then you are essentially limiting all of their rights that we are guaranteed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, w- I wanna read that full thread, and that makes a lot of sense. Can you talk more about when you because I, I like saw it in passing that they started targeting like their Bitcoin wallets or whatever. Can you talk about like what that actually meant? Like they found the yeah. wallets of each individual protester or what what was the
1: what was so the my point? understanding is so you have to so are you familiar with the the concept of like a custodial versus a non custodial wallet? Not really. Okay. So this is an important thing to recognize. So when you sign up for a Coinbase account and you buy Bitcoin, uh, you don't actually have any Bitcoin. You basically have a promise from Coinbase that they will give you the Bitcoin if you want to take it off of Coinbase. So what that is, is that's a custodial wallet. Your Bitcoin is essentially on Coinbase. What happens is, um, so if you have a non-custodial wallet, That means that you hold the private keys. Only you can control that Bitcoin. And in order to get your Bitcoin from one place to another, you have to send it from Coinbase to the non-custodial wallet. So (laughs) when the Canadian government went and told crypto companies to freeze accounts, that's like that's like the US going to Coinbase and saying, "Don't let Justin take his Bitcoin off of the platform."
0: Ah, I see. Right, I see. So this is why
1: a lot of Bitcoiners are like, "Get your get your." Bitcoin off of exchanges, not your keys, not your coin. This Mm. actually goes deeper though, because there's a whole other segment of Bitcoiners that say um, non-KYC Bitcoin, right? Because in theory, um, when I take my Bitcoin off of Coinbase and send it to my non-custodial wallet, Coinbase knows what that wallet address is, right? Because they had Mm -hmm. to send it there. So in theory, you could track Robert Boyle signed up for Coinbase, bought this much Bitcoin, and now it's at this address, that must be owned by Robert Boyle, right? And so Mm -hmm. now there's this whole other movement within the Bitcoin space of like non-KYC Bitcoin, which is basically getting Bitcoin without it being associated with your identity, identity. which can only be done on like a peer-to-peer exchange or a Bitcoin ATM or by being paid in Bitcoin. Hmm. Uh,
0: Non-KYC, interesting. That gives those like like Silk Road vibes and nefarious (laughs) use
1: case vibes. Well, here you go. I'm so glad you brought that up because in that same thread from 6529, he makes this point where he's like, before the invention of the internet, all money was non-custodial, right? All exchanges happened in the form of like gold or some form of cash or some commodity money, like shells, if you go all the way back. It is only since the internet that we have created this idea of custodial money, where there has to be some type of internet service provider that arbitrates the transaction. And now, 50 years later, we have people like you saying, oh, anything that's non-custodial must be illegal. If you have nothing to hide, why do you care? Um, but it's important to recognize that for all of human history, m- monetary transactions were non-custodial. And what crypto does is it brings that back to the internet.
0: I see. I see. Non-KYC. That's the first time I've ever heard it used that way. It's interesting.
1: So yeah, that's my take on the Canadian truckers. Do you have your own, maybe this can segue into your second or third topic.
0: So the reason I was um, thinking about the truckers, right, is because I was thinking about surveillance and there's more of like, like a more thoughts behind that. But the reason I was thinking about surveillance is because normally when people, the the reason that they're kind of against mass surveillance is the fact that people... Initially, say that they they don't have anything to hide, right? So, why Mm -hmm. not? Like, you you could have all my information, you could have the cameras on me, you could have my my records, all that sort of stuff. I have nothing to hide, look through my emails, whatever, right? And the immediate rebuttal is the fact that it really doesn't matter if you have done anything like nefarious, right? It matters on how we could deploy the information we have on you if need be. And that's the reason why I was thinking about these truckers, right? Like, if you Mm -hmm. had a surveillance. Uh, mechanism out there doesn't matter if they haven't done anything before, but if a something comes up like this, which is the protest, or it's just individuals who are donating to the protest, and you're able to pull up their accounts, you're able to pull up all these things that you could freeze and attack. Um, there, there's like a there's danger in that when you think of surveillance states. So that was the reason I was thinking about the truckers, but the 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 larger kind of question here was about the event that happened last Sunday. Um, I believe that. Kind of left me like very angry, very depressed. Like there were a lot of visceral reactions that came out of this, right? And this was the the murder of Christina Yuna Lee um, that happened in uh, Lower Manhattan, right? This is her walking back to her apartment, um, an assailant following her into her apartment, murdering her. Um, and this kind of just goes on the long list or the uptake in hate crimes that you've seen following the onset of the pandemic. Um, this was in, uh, a woman of Asian descent. Um, in, in this attack, really gruesome, really just horrible attack, and it it really made me think about like reactionary versus preventative policing and the systems that could be enacted to help avoid these sorts of things. Because the the like one reaction you see immediately when this sort of thing happens is we just need, let's let's 20x the, the, the amount of police in a certain place, increase the police per capita, and we'll see a prevention of these sorts of things or like a better detailing dealing with these sorts of things. Um, and then there's the other side of it that people are like, there should just be complete surveillance, right? There should be a camera on every corner. Um, you should have just this like massive passive surveillance happening that you could avoid some of these things or, or have better reactions and emergency reactions to these sorts of things. So following that gruesome event, that's kind of where my, my, my brain went. Um, And to the like police side of it, it's, There's a lot of data that shows that an increase in the amount of police in a certain area has no correlation or sporadic correlation with a reduction in homicide or reduction in like index cases, right? The like uh, the the really bad ones, right? Murder, rape, like those sorts of things. Um, And there are a lot of studies that show that there's no real correlation between those things. And there are studies that show that things like um, having street lighting shows a reduction in index crimes. Having Cleaning up vacant lots in different places shows a reduction in index crimes. And there are a lot of different strategies that show reduction in those crimes as opposed to policing and amounts of police. Um, so when people have the reaction that's like we just have to pump up the amount of police we have, there's not a lot of data to show for that. So that's to the first point. And then to the second point is more about like these surveillance states and if there are ways to deploy the surveillance state so that like, it makes a lot of sense in reducing these crimes, um, or if you're infringing on people's rights. So like, apologies. These are kind of just a, like ideas that were popping up in reaction to this event. Um, but I'm curious when events like this happen, where your mind goes, and then just generally how you feel about the different models of policing and crime prevention.
1: Well, I think um, the fundamental trade-off here is when people feel less safe, they're more willing to have their rights infringed upon. And I think this is a theme that is going to continue to come up because I do think that we are in for a much more violent 2020s than the 2010s or the 2000s. And and when the level of, I would call this like small street crime increases, um, and people feel less safe, they're more willing for different things to happen, whether that be Um, increasing the police presence or increasing the surveillance presence. So I do think that's where we're going. Unfortunately, you know, when you hear about a story like Christina Lee, and I actually wasn't familiar with the story until you brought it up. um, Hmm. My first thought was, well, how exactly does one stop this from happening? Right. Is it about having a door person in every single New York city apartment um, is it about increasing the security, like the the ID verification of people being able to get into buildings, for instance? Um, I do think there are certain technological uh, solutions to this. For instance, you know, we've had break-ins into my apartment building because you know, you go into the apartment, you open the door, someone comes in behind you, you don't know if they live there or not because you don't know who your neighbors are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how people get into a building. Would it make sense to have some type of like biometric scan, some type of device or AI that knows exactly who lives in the building and can be sure to not let certain people in if they don't? Right. So mm-hmm. I do think there are certain technological solutions that I would favor over an increased police presence, because at least they're not as biased, potentially, as uh, a police department would be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see where you're... I think where my head went with this. So apparently the the individual, the assailant here, um, was like named Mr. Nash or something, and he actually had a record. He was in their database. And you mm-hmm. just think of surveillance systems where you, computer vision IDs him, you know who this person is, and you know there's a certain like criminal risk score associated with that person. And then you mm-hmm. also see him through the cameras following this individual and maybe... Is that an alarm that goes off? Do certain police forces get notified? Like you think of some of the reactions that could happen with something like this if you have a surveillance system that is working to identify those sorts of things. Um, on the other side of it though, is like, I, I, have you heard of um, in the LAPD's, what is it called? Operation Laser? Like, have you heard about this at all? No. So this was this uh, predictive policing um, like strategy or program that was being done in LA um, called Operation Laser because the idea was that you could extract extract offenders from different places with the precision of like laser surgery, right? So mm-hmm. essentially what would happen is they look, they prune through all their gun-related crimes, their arrest information, and they would create a map that they called this problem area. Um, and I think they called it like a laser zone, right? So like this, mm-hmm. this laser motif that's going on. Um, and then they would give every person in that area a criminal risk score. And this was something based off of their arrest records, gang affiliation, field interviews. They would put all this information into a, a some sort of um, data model that would give each individual score. Um, and this would involve in like higher policing in that problem area and just extracting as much data as possible from this like low level surveillance that was happening. And the reason right. that this was like a news story is because two things. One, there was like, massive, uh, like a a massive um, social justice movement against it, right? Because Mm -hmm. they were seeing how the system was only being employed in black and brown neighborhoods and actually leading to an uptick in people getting harassed just on the street with field interviews um, and a lot of like petty low-level crimes. And then Mm -hmm. also um, Nipsey Hussle, like in Crenshaw, his his, uh, it was like the shop he had was ID'd as a point of interest in this like laser zone that they were talking about. And he wow. would do interviews where he's like, every time someone leaves my store, they're getting interviewed by a police officer, right? And people who are have no connection to, to crime or anything of that sort are now in this data model that's being used and they're having some sort of score to it. So- uh, I like immediately went to this like surveillance uh solution, but then you think of examples of real surveillance happening in the u s um and how they just naturally kind of uh are are pinpointed on certain t- people who look a certain way um and exploitation by by the uh by cops and by police
1: yeah, I mean this is a tough issue because I think it's related to this theme of creating different levels of access in society, and we're seeing this first with the the mask and the vaccine mandates, right. You know, uh, people who, uh, we're at, we actually have three tiers now, right? Like you have the unvaccinated, the the partially vaccinated, and now this new term, the fully vaccinated, right? And there mm, are different, mm. there are differential levels of access based on which camp you fall into. And so I agree that this idea of like a, 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 a not a fraud risk score, that's something that Platt does, <laughs> uh, but a, a crime risk score is very, very scary because there are certain people who are going to be looped into something that they had no part of just exactly. because they were in, a, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then it comes back to this idea of Christina, you Lee, because like the first thing that you think when you hear about this is like, oh, what can we do to make sure that this can never happen again? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then at the same time, the other part of my brain is going is it, it, like, can we do anything? to make sure that this can never happen without completely uh, changing the way that our lives are lived in a a very negative way. Um, Hmm. And that's something I keep going back and forth to because the thing that I don't like about stories like this is if you look at the headlines, it says like Asian American woman stabbed 40 times. And they make this out to be like specifically about race when we don't know that it essentially was about race. This could have just been like a crime among crimes. And I think that that is the way that this should be treated. Whereas the way that I'm seeing it being treated in just the initial headlines is like, oh, we want to start talking about anti-Asian hate again. Hmm. Um, And (laughs) what I don't like about these situations is I do believe that often the media uses it to generate clicks by making it specifically about race when actually maybe we just need to be talking about like, how do we keep each other safe and, and what is the best policy to mitigate crime?
0: Interesting. Interesting. No, I I do see what you're saying. And I see that there has, especially in in the last year, there have been media exploiting certain stories to run like certain narratives in in that case. Um, To the earlier point, I think it's this like trade-off is interesting because trade-off between what can you do to fix this and to what level, if you were to fix this, would it negatively affect or impact a bunch of other things? Because it sounds like kind of inevitably there are going to be a certain percentage of crimes that you cannot do anything about. Um, and making that decision like is, is a difficult decision to to go through. Um, and I'm not going to act like I'm studying like police operations or how this generally works, but you see events like this and you have such like a visceral reaction. And it was very
1: difficult to to think about these sorts of things. Yeah. Well, I think what's tough. And one of the reasons that I, made an active decision to get off of Twitter in the beginning of 2021 was like, I felt like, especially in 2020, you had like a Mod R brewery and then George Floyd and then, Uh um, you know, Brianna Taylor. And I felt like I was just being taken through this wave of like being forced to get really upset about something. And then like the, the coverage would move on. And then only if you uh, basically had the intention to go back and follow up, would you ever hear about it again? And I got to a certain point where I was very frustrated with the waves that I was being taken through, especially given the fact that I didn't actually feel like the media that was being presented to me, I felt like those entities didn't actually care about the story. They just recognized that they could use it to generate attention over a certain amount of time, at which point once they could no longer generate attention, like it didn't matter. Um, And so I think one can only find solutions to these issues if you basically take it at like a foundational level and stop paying attention to like the individual cases, um, even though that's not natural, right? Like it's very visceral when you read these headlines and you want to dive deep into the case. Um, But I think that does ultimately distract us from like what actually needs to be done. Not that I know what actually needs to be done.
0: I agree. But that then also makes you dependent on data reporting and the all the ways in which you could try to find the big picture and find like patterns in terms of actions. And then you're questioning the quality of data. You're questioning the source of data. Um, there are like a bunch of other things that it goes down that, that the, the like takeaway here is that it's very difficult and there is no like one direction to go through. Um, but yeah, it, it also made me like my last, my last thing that I was thinking about here is about like decentralized surveillance. Like you think of the ways in which, uh, people have recorded things, put it online, and that's the only way we know about things. And then it gets attention and you could actually see justice being served. Um, you think about oh, what's the, the company like citizen um, oh, the citizen has like weird, but citizen, I believe was also employing people to go to like hotspots and record it themselves. So you could be employed by citizen for like 20 an hour, 25 an hour or something. You get a notification, yo, go to this place and start recording it. Um, hmm. And it's like an interesting question about like, is is decentralized surveillance a path to go under does that make it better because there's no third party that could kind of run their have have an agenda with how they're doing surveillance and censor certain things or
1: not and is that even decentralized
0: things? is it even decentralized yeah ex- exactly right. exactly
1: like this actually uh i was in my mind i was thinking like how the fuck am i going to transition into the next topic but you i have found the <laughs> way through this decentralization versus centralization beautiful so, so I'm here. um I think the I think the political axis in the United States is going to change over the next few years. It's, it's no longer going to be left versus right, but it's actually going to be um, what biology would call crypto tribalism, right? So let me let me set up a few um, parallels for you. Um, being very deep into the crypto space, one thing I've started to see is that people who are Bitcoin maximalists tend to lean right, um, whereas people who are ETH heads tend to lean left, right. Uh, people who tend to care about the environment and climate change, uh, they tend to be on the left. Uh, people who care less tend to be on the right. Um, you can you can parallel that with um, the, the consensus mechanisms, right? Proof of work, Bitcoin tends to be right, more energy intensive, proof of stake, Ethereum, less energy intensive, I more see. on the left. Sure. The final one, and we brought this up earlier, uh, KYC versus non-KYC. People who really, really care about this non-KYC tend to be Bitcoiners. People who care more about Ethereum uh, tend not to really care where you get your Ethereum if you buy it on a centralized exchange, et cetera. And so I think the new political axis is not going to be left or right, but it's going to be centralized versus decentralized, right? Um, Proof of stake versus proof of work. Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And um, what this assumes, obviously, is that eventually crypto will... Get to a point where it is not only accepted, but it is obvious that everyone has to use it. And the tribalism that already exists within crypto is going to spread to everyone. And while there are parallels between the left and right, you're going to see people switching sides, right? It's not going to be the traditional left right that we know from the 2000s up to the 2020s. It's going to be a new. Kind of um, a new kind of war, but it will be one of decentralization versus centralization. And by the way, last point I'll make on this: the centralized camp will support the U.S. government, while the decentralized camp will not. And I think that's going to be the biggest tension point.
0: The centralized camp being—is this the Bitcoin camp? Which the centralized no, camp, so being which camp? the
1: Bitcoin—the Bitcoin camp would be the decentralized camp. But another 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 comp maybe. If you think about um, the traditional, if you think about the extremes of the left and the right, right? So like mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. uh, the socialists on the left, and then like the nationalist Trumpers on the right. Mm-hmm. Even though they even though they fundamentally disagree, they actually have a core agreement, which is that they think the United States uh, should be in charge, right? They just disagree about what the United States should be doing, but fundamentally yeah. they believe that the state should be controlling everything and that the state should be doing something specific. Whereas on the decentralized camp where you have like a lot of the Bitcoiners and a lot of the international community specifically, so non-Americans think that that America shouldn't have all of the power that it does currently have. And so that's kind of like the new uh, political divide.
0: I see. I see. It's funny too, because this transition doesn't like solve any issues. Like there, you have the same polarization of the sides. Like there's, there's no work being done. I'm just thinking about that. I, I do agree well, with so your observation. On that.
1: Like, uh, I think even that idea, like no work being done, what it assumes is that you have a, a static, um, world order and that the United States is going to be working to like solve problems, right? And I think this is like the fundamental assumption that all Americans make, which is that, oh, if only the right people were in power, then things could be a certain way, right? Um, And the reason that I think that is a fundamentally bad perspective to have at this moment is because we we are living through a transition where the United States is losing and no longer even has a lot of the powers that we assume that it has. Um, and the international community in particular is is gaining in power. And so I think this new framework will actually be a recognition of what the, the new world order will look like. And I do think that the decentralized camp um, is going to fundamentally be right because as we've talked about before, I do think that the US is a declining power. Yeah, yeah.
0: I have to I have to process that a bit and I I understand what you're saying. I also like I, I agree with your observation of Bitcoin and the camp that follows there. I'm thinking of the the writers and the people that I've seen on the Ethereum side and seeing if if it is true that they kind of relate to this this party that you're you're talking about? Because, I mean, sure, you have like the, the proof of work, proof of stake um, and energy consumption. But other than that, I don't know how many more observed, like how many more characteristics of the kind of more on the left resemble the, the ETH community.
1: It's not perfect. Uh, and it's also based on a lot of like my own observations from people I know, right? So mm. for instance, mm. uh, like I told you, I'm on kind of like Plaid's Working Group. Um, and mm-hmm. there are two Slack channels <laughs> at Plaid. One is called Bitcoin maximalist. One is called Web3, right? <laughs> and based on, you know, I, I have grown a little bit um, skeptical of Web3 over like the past six months for reason that's that, that, that we've spoken about. Um, and, I, and I just find that I tend to see more people who have more liberal politics um, attracted to the ETH camp specifically because Bitcoin maximalists tend to be incredibly toxic. Uh, and I think this is related to a lot of their views that tend to lean conservative. I think in this moment in the United States, like we're, we're all looking for signals to find out which bucket people are in. Um, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of people that get onboarded into ETH. Uh, or just crypto in general they tend to skip over bitcoin because as they're doing the research they get signals from a lot of maximalists that they like for instance don't care about climate change or they don't think that trump was so bad except or that they're really into guns right and all you need is one signal to be like oh i don't want to be in that camp and so as people get onboarded into crypto. They're either going to start with btc and then do everything else or they're going to skip it and go straight to ETH. and i do think that the traditional political divide is having a lot of impact over how people get onboarded into crypto
0: i see i see that that makes a lot of sense and it's also like interesting but also very true that you're affected by like the the community in which you join is based more on the 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 actors in that community and the noise in that community, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to the actual value of like what is like reading a white paper
1: and understanding the the, the technical basis. So well, I, you know, people, well, people aren't doing the homework and this isn't even about yeah. like, I mean, if you just think about traditional politics, like so many of the uh, values that are looped in to being a liberal or, or a conservative are not consistent with each other, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fundamentally, you know, we're all just kind of downloading our opinions from the media that we consume. Yeah, yeah,
0: huh. That's uh, I, I also have the perfect transition, but this is this is an interesting topic. <laughs> um, it also have you have you been tuned into um, ETH Denver by any chance, like the the yes, conference and Plaid going go. there,
1: dude? Uh, this is every so I'm going to the Bitcoin conference in Miami in in a few months. Um, okay, but everyone at Plaid wants to go to ETH Denver, the, the new EDC. So,
0: I've seen a lot on my Twitter feed about ETH Denver, um, which, like you said, this conference that's happening, this Web3 conference that's happening in Denver. Um, and I, when did it start? I'm trying to – I'm pulling up the schedule now because I feel like I've been hearing this for a while. So, okay, so the kickoff was February 11th. They had – February 11th to the 17th, they had a build week, um, and apparently the main event is on the 20th, so it's today, and then it's, it's almost over. But the reason why I bring up ETH Denver is because um, – a lot of the, the, the things that you see on Twitter is about the dating scene in eat Denver and how like the, <laughs> really? the, like all of the, the people are like, Oh my God, if you're, if you're a woman going to eat Denver, like good luck. Like it's going to be shit. You're going to have a rough, rough week on, on the dating apps. And I've been thinking a bit about like dating itself and these things. Cause I've been looking at these shows, um, where they've kind of like, uh, made dating an automatic process, um, Oh, goodness. I.e., like, the, the two shows that do this, there's one called Soulmates, which is produced by AMC, or on AMC, and then there's one called The Cir- the the One, sorry, on Netflix, and the especially they, they all, <laughs> I, I did not watch the, I saw, like, one episode of The Circle, and I was like, I can't do this, I, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't do this. Uh, But these shows have the same premise, right? Essentially, there's, there's some mysterious tech company that pops up and you step into this place, they analyze your DNA, you do like a questionnaire, you swab some cheeks, whatever, right? And they're able to pair you with your person, the person who the algorithms say you have a perfect match with. And yeah. all of the drama in these shows is like, should you go the natural way of just finding someone, the people who are married or like, should I stay with who I'm married to? Or should I, should I go with where the, the algorithm tells me to go with? And they're kind of like two thoughts I have here. One, I think they're like, I have a lot of confidence in this being truth in like 20 years that we will be able wow. to be like, instantaneously paired with who are matches out there, yeah. right? Um, you think of uh, the, I mean, what, the match company kind of owns all of the key the key companies right now and you think of how much data they have on how two people pair with each other, when someone puts on certain filters, how they pair with each other, the fact that Hinge and I think Tinder now has audio, like audio recordings of people um, that you could then base, like pitch a voice on who they end up getting with. There's just massive data that you have on people that could probably inform a lot of these these matching um so my like one thing is that this will be a reality in twenty years, and my second thing is like like would I do it like is this a bad thing would i would I be interested in doing something like this um is there is simply the belief that there is a true person out there for me enough to like immediately want to choose that option versus mm. going the normal like dating pathways so i'm this is obviously my my lighthearted topic for the day but i'm curious like your thoughts on this sort of thing would you ever trust an algorithm to match you with someone do you ever think this will become a a real thing
1: uh, I definitely think this uh, will become a real thing, similar to the way that online dating has become a real thing when people thought that was weird 15 years ago. I do think, though, that this won't lead to uh, successful relationships, um, because I think that uh, being in a, su- a successful relationship is less about uh, being compatible, and it's more about are you willing to put in work with this person to develop a relationship over time, which I think uh, you can actually do with like most people right obviously um there are certain people that you're going to be incompatible with um but that's something that you can determine uh within 10 minutes you know you don't Mm -hmm. need an app to help tell you that um and i think the from the pool of everyone else that you are compatible with if you are willing to put in the effort and that person is willing to put in the effort and you believe that having like a a single monogamous relationship is something that's worth doing um that's what's really going to matter and um I I don't think being more or less compatible with someone so long as you're within, let's say like a a, a good range is actually going to be the deciding factor.
0: Interesting. Because I, I view this as solving the discovery portion of it. Like I view this as being able to, I feel also that if someone were to get a recommendation that their biology tells them they're matched with this person, then they will have more buy-in right to growing that that relationship and being well as to, being willing to develop that sort of thing. Um, that's also why I believe there's a massive, I mean, you have all these people our age who have massive amounts of discretionary income due to tech. And I think there's a really big company out there that could be built that's purely on this like coaching aspect, right? So whether mm. it's working on the discoverability part of the problem or like the building relationship part of the problem. Um, I think something like Hinge matches you with someone and then you have the Hinge Plus service that helps you develop this relationship <laughs> with that that individual and coaching um, associated with that. So, Justin, should yeah. we start a business? <laughs> I'm just saying. If, <laughs> uh, if this is, the, uh, if this is the, the first meeting we have on this thing, I, will I, say, I think there's a massive
1: market here. I think you're right. There's a massive market here, but there's another problem that needs to be solved. And I would say that the biggest problem with online dating is that it gave, uh, it gave everyone too many options, Mm -hmm. which means that it's very hard for anyone to settle into something and put the effort in, uh, to, to, because the the thing, the thing now is, you know, when I think about my parents' generation and the generation before them, you know, people married people that were, uh, close to them geographically proximity. And a lot of them actually developed great relationships because they had no other choice. Um, and I think when you're in this environment where even if you can be matched with someone who's compatible with you, you can be matched with 10 other people who are just as compatible with you. And so I think the, the real issue that we all need to, uh, and I think this again comes back to individual accountability. It's like, are you willing to sacrifice your options to have a great relationship with someone? Because the idea mm-hmm. is that no matter how good your relationship is, oh, like maybe it could be better if I was with this other person. And I think uh, the only way to get rid of that, because we have it now, right? Like because of online dating, we know. That we all have options now the only way to remove that as a factor is for individual people to consciously say i am going to limit my options because i don't really care about who i'm with specifically i want to have a great relationship and i'm bought into the idea that like i could have a great relationship with lots of people but it's about just doing it with one specific person
0: i completely agree um that's also consistent. I, I like mentioned, I think in our first episode, that book that I was reading about dating yeah. and Logan Yuri, right? This person who's head of something at Hinge, she's a behavioral psychologist. She, that type of person she defines as a maximizer and she goes like in depth to exactly what you're talking about, how you have to be willing to sacrifice that option and, or the other options and, and work through that. So you, you sound like a, like a dating coach right here, which means this business is going to, it's
1: going to come in you're talking to someone who's never been in a long-term relationship. These are just <laughs> thoughts, These are just thoughts, uh, lead us home, lead us home. Yeah, man. So the first week, uh, that week you came out here was the first week that I started the carnivore diet. Right. Um, yes, and so yep. I did it, I did it for about, uh, five months and then, in January of this year, I listened to Knees Over Toes guy on the Joe Rogan podcast. And they were talking mm. about it. And Joe Rogan was like, hey, what's your diet? And he's like, I eat meat and fruit. And I was like, oh, look, that's interesting. So you're basically like a carnivore, but you also eat fruit. Why is that? And uh, they started talking about it a little bit. And then Joe Rogan made this comment where he's like, yeah, I tried the carnivore diet for a month, but I was having a lot of trouble like finding the motivation to go to the gym. And in that moment... It hit me like a a ton of bricks because I remember about a few weeks into it, once I got over kind of like the transition phase, I noticed that I didn't feel motivated to work out, right? Like I still worked out. Like I've been, you know, doing like, I've been doing basically two days, like for like the past eight years, you know, like I I love Hmm. working out, like I love doing things. It's like a very big part of my life and my personality. For the first time Hmm. basically ever, I didn't feel like I needed to work out. And I was still working out. I was still doing things. But I think over time, I noticed that it wasn't as fun to work out as it used to be. And then I started thinking about all of the kind of like testimonials and reviews and success stories that I had read. I noticed that a lot of people who did the carnivore diet, they were able to you know lose weight, build lean muscle mass. But I noticed that a lot of them hardly ever worked out. Like they would maybe work out once a week, they would go for walks, but they weren't athletes in the way that I wanted to be an athlete. And so for a a second, it kind of hit me and it's like, okay, maybe this diet is working well for a lot of people, but maybe for the type of life that I want to live, um, I need to do something else. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to add in fruit and see what happens. And so I started with like, apples, bananas, red seedless grapes, oranges. And I did notice literally immediately the next day that I had way more, let's just call it like juice when I would go Hmm. and work out and I would do like my knees over toes stuff. And then I started getting interested in knees over toes guy, Paul Saladino, carnivore Aurelius, all these people who were mostly carnivore, but also did other things like honey and like oranges and coconut water and all this other stuff and it's been an interesting transition because I definitely think I've made the right decision I feel better than I did let's say back in January and I think I learned a lot of really important things from carnivore but I just wanted to like give you that update in particular because I know that you were here when I first started it
0: -hmm. no I've seen your entire journey here and it's pretty (laughs) pretty cool to hear that Wow, I, what is the it, like? Do do you know why there that people report this lessening motivation to work out? Is it like, like la- lack of carbs, or is there like a basis for why yeah, people so go through I that? Think,
1: so I think you know when you get inducted into like kind of this carnivore uh, mentality, there's this idea that um, just carbs are are bad for you, and that we didn't eat carbs. Um, I think my perspective on this has has grown to the to to my my current belief, which is that. There's, there's levels to this in terms of like what carbs are good and not bad for you. And it's not necessarily about carbohydrates, the macronutrient. It's more about what is the source of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And, um, one thing that knees over toes guy said that I really resonate with is he only eats one food, one ingredient foods, right? So you think about that one ingredient foods, any food, like an orange, there's only one ingredient, it's an orange, right? A steak has one ingredient, it's steak. All of these are things that are quote unquote, natural things that you have to cook things that you couldn't get, um, in a, in a, in a traditional grocery store. And so I think Mm -hmm. the perspective that I've developed is that the, the things that we want to avoid are, you know, the highly processed foods, all these things with oils. Um, and I think a lot of people who find benefit with the carnivore diet, what they're benefiting from is the increased levels of like protein and fat but also the elimination of all of these seed oils and processed foods. processed Synthetic, yep. Yeah, and, and if you go through a transition like that and your health dramatic, dramatically improves because of it, you may be convinced that like, oh, I, I, I just need to eat meat, right? And I think you actually can, you can survive and do quite well on meat, but for the life that I wanted, I wanted to have more energy, more vitality. I thought adding in other natural sources of carbs, like honey, and fruit in particular really gave me like that little edge that I wanted.
0: Mm, mm. You're just, you're just bulk scooping honey. How are you ingesting Dude, all this honey?
1: I, uh, I put it on my steak as a topping. That's so gross. That you is know, so disgusting. Not. If you try it, oh it will my change God. your life. So I go to the farmer's market in Oakland every Saturday mm-hmm. and I get raw, fresh honey. And then I put it on my meat and it's, it's literally the greatest thing you've ever, you'll ever try.
0: I will never speak to you again. This is it. This is <laughs> when you come
1: out here, I will make you one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I this is not directly related, but the the one thing I have been very happy about in the last twenty four hours is that there are a bunch of these delivery companies out in New York now. Right? Mm-hmm. There's Joker, Getter, Bike, all these things that are competing, and still got the seamless. way that they're they yeah, Seamless is still out here. Um, okay. I, I don't think I've ever used Seamless though, but the way that they, these grocery delivery companies are competing is that they're having these ridiculous promos. So, I this morning I ordered groceries. Um, I got let's see, I got a carton of eggs, I got breakfast sausages, I got a bunch of Chobani yogurts, I got all these these different things, right? Maybe 20, 25 items total, right? Mm. I paid $11 like the promotions are ridiculous these are high quality foods that i'm paying like a dollar for and it's just my my entire apartment have has been doing this we've probably like made in what we've been able to get probably like hundreds of dollars by now so now that i have like these groceries here and now that you're telling me how to fix my diet i think i'm gonna employ a lot of these things but i will never i promise you i will never have
1: honey (laughs) on my steak i promise you (laughs) don't knock it till you try it (laughs) <laughs> All right, let's let's end on this. Have you watched the Kanye doc?
0: No, I was supposed to watch it last night with a group of oh people, but I haven't I haven't watched it yet. Don't spoil anything for me, please. I I want to watch it for the first time and be.
1: I'll I'll spoil it in this way. It um, I we saw a, a version of Kanye that I'm so glad to know now exists. I think that after Kanye's mother died, he became a, a particularly different person. The the Kanye 100%. that I saw in this documentary, had the same confidence, ego, talent, passion, but he was just so much more calm, level-headed. He seemed happy. He seemed very happy-go-lucky, and I'll, I'll spoil this part. Like His mother is in the first episode of the doc, and just listening to her speak The way she speaks, she speaks with this like warm voice, this smile, Hmm. like the love that she had for Kanye, it it oozes out of Hmm. her, like watching their relationship, like it's the relationship you wish you had with your own mother, you know? Um, And it was just so good to see that. And I think I understand so much more deeply now um, why Kanye is the way he is uh, because of that first episode. So I'm just so glad that this doc exists
0: that's beautiful um I I mean you know that I'm a huge Kanye fan so I I've like a lot of anticipation about this doc I have to just set aside the time and, and get through it but
1: Dude, it'll cool. make you re-fall in love with the college dropout <laughs> like there's there are scenes where he's like working on like Jesus walks and like uh family business like ugh, it, there's there's a lot of great stuff family, in business, and this is for the family that can be with us and this is
0: for my cousin like, damn, the this why and my song so sweet like a photo where you're granny fishing out at your gone, and hit us super hard on Thanksgiving and Christmas this can't be right yeah you heard the track I did man this can't be like somebody please say grace so I can save face and have a reason to cover my face I even made you a plate soul food know how granny do it monkey bread on the side know how the family do it when I brought a why the car I had to look off through it as kids we used to laugh who knew that life would move this fast who knew I have to look at you through a glass and look you tell me you ain't did it then you ain't did it and if you and that's family business